Testing. Yep, testing here. How, how are you? Good, good. Today's actually a pretty full day when it comes to news. There's a lot happening. Yeah, as long as you uh, determine what you define as news and not news. Uh, there's You're going to like them. There's the, the Vitalik Buterin story. There's a digital euro. The ECB chief Lagarde said it will take two years, two years away. Um, there's Bitcoin gaining the legal recognition in Shanghai. Trust me, man. I know what you mean. Don't don't play me. There's a lot of good news, and there's I've got there more is. more examples. Now the news that you like, um, I don't think you know. Obviously the the Bitboy drama and stuff that we'll we'll talk about it briefly. But I think I'd rather focus on the fundamentals. Unlike you, uh, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pushing buttons today. Locko's huh? on behind the scenes of this show, guys. <laughs> I'm pushing. Up I'm, I'm pushing. Yeah, if you guys know what's happening behind the scenes, you'd be like, holy shit, what did Murray just say? Um, but I have no shame. Um, I'm just sending out all the invites. Um, let me set John, if John Deaton could join as well. It's actually pretty pretty insane. Like, I'm so proud of the team. To be able to invite, um, John may be able to join, and then uh, Stephen uh, Naryoff, did say he can join yesterday um, to be able to cover the story. It's just, it's incredible that the team is man is able to get the speakers, the main people involved in the story to come on stage and discuss it. Um, so uh, yeah, it's hats amazing. off to them. Let me get Ryan. Is Ryan out of his holiday? Is he available today? He's available. He, I just saw something in the message that he didn't see that spaces had started or something. Ah, cool. I'm just sent him an advice. That happens sometimes where I click on your profile and for some reason it doesn't do it. I close the app and open it again and there you are. But I see him. He's, he's, uh, yeah, I just sent him an invite. He's in that's the called, uh, that's called, uh, blocking. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just wake up in the morning. Right. I'm like, strange. Why can't you see it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, cool. All right. Let's kick it off. Ryan, how are you? Ryan, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, uh, sorry, I'm, just trying, I'm trying to accept your co-host invite. Okay, there we go. I'm back. I, um, How's it going? Uh, yeah, man. I'll, before kicking off the show, I wanted to ask you about the kid that you found, the guy that writes the threads. I was watching your video on the weekend um, in uh, Token 2049. Anything happened since you met him in Singapore? So, yeah, I'm actually – I'm going to speak to him. Um, I think we actually we should speak to him. He's amazing. He's a 14-year-old little kid. The guy knows crypto so well. He's such a little operator. It's unbelievable. So a funny story about him, uh, he DM'd me when he had about 10 followers and said, uh, hey, Patrick, can you follow me? And I said, tell you what, get to 100, you know, because people DM every day saying, follow me back. I said, get to 100 uh, and I'll follow you. Uh, and so then sort of was helping him write threads for, for a few weeks to get to 100 and then crazy how far he's come now. So you're his ghostwriter? Is that what you're telling me? Is that his 14-year-old is using you as I, uh, child labor? Uh, I've never ghostwritten for him, but I did give him feedback. I, 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 I met him and I just I made it like my personal to try and help him as much as I can. I think I met him at like 800 uh, Twitter followers. I don't know what he's on today. I'm actually, let's just try. I don't remember the name of his, his account. What's Zero his, X. Uh, yeah, what's his username? He's, uh, just for anyone, while you're searching his username, for anyone listening. So, so Ran bumped into a kid who's very charismatic and he's like, hey, come on, I'll, I'll interview you for the show. Because Rand did like a series for Crypto uh, Talking 2049. And he interviews the kids, really good chat. And then kid turns out to be great at writing threads. And then Rand's like, yeah, maybe come work with us, man. I'll mentor you and you could write threads for us. It's called child labor. And, um, and So zero, zero, X, zero X Golden Degen is, is, his, uh, email, is uh, his Twitter handle. Uh, he's great. I mean, wow, 14 years old. This guy is absolutely amazing. Gee, I, I mean, wow. So It'll blow your mind what he knows at 14 and the way that he operates at the age of 14. Yeah, he's not coming up mm. for me. I don't know if he's shadow banned. Um, so there's a lot of news. I, I, no, he's not. I got him. 3,761 oh, followers. Wow. You follow, I'm following yeah. him right now. Uh, yeah, send me, yeah, send me, well, send me his username, yeah. uh, Scott. Uh, but guys, zero X, I'll do it right now. Golden DJ. Oh, one zero X. I thought it was twice because he said zero X twice. Um, I, I want to, because uh, I know John is here. And uh, John, I'm, I'm glad you were able to join because that's probably the main story. And, and we've got um, uh, Stephen coming on shortly as well. Um, but there is... No, I consider this to be pretty, uh, pretty important, and I kind of give a very brief overview for the audience, kind of the main story of the day. And essentially, accusation. It's a bit vague what the accusations are, um, but accusations against uh, Vitalik Buterin and um, and the Ethereum Foundation. But and his father and his father. Um, I forgot his name. Um, by an ex-Ethereum advisor, Stephen 
Naryov. And for me, there's a lot. of a great article about it that I was reading. Um, for me, the highlight is the possession. I'm going to read out one part of the article that I think for me, I find to be the most serious. It's not just like uh, you know business squabbles. Uh, squabbles is possession of documents that reveal malpractices within the SEC as well as during the Ethereum ICO. Yeah, what did that mean? To, uh, maybe John can explain that because that was so vague to me. I didn't understand if that meant that the SEC did something wrong or there was something wrong on the Ethereum side in their dealings with the SEC. But John, maybe you can give hey us give us like a general overview first and then we get into the details. Good to have you. Well, well thanks for having me. But I, I don't know what article you're talking about, and to be honest with you. Um, and so... When you say it's the one by the one that the team sent me is the one by Cryptopolitan, Cryptopolitan yeah. or something. Yeah, very trusted um, source. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, wait. <laughs> well, well, I think you did. You said Stephen is coming on. Did you? Say? Yes. Yeah. He he is. He confirmed yesterday. Um. So we've sent him through the invite. I'll follow up with the team. All right. So like obviously, uh, uh, he could speak for himself. You know, my point is is where I got involved and I did a, a live stream where I said that, you know, um, attorney client communications have been established. So obviously any communications, uh, between him and myself, um, are protected, uh, by the attorney client privilege. And I've, I've made general statements because, you know, Steve is represented by, uh, an attorney, uh, and there's lots of things going on as many people know, he was arrested, um, and the most interesting thing about it that caught my eye, uh, so everyone knows, I actually had Stephen Nayaroff video on my crypto law video timeline. When you go on my site, I have all kinds of uh, videos, Joe Lubin, Vitalik, everyone, and, and, um, and I had him on there, like there were times on the videos where he admitted that the ETH ICO was an illegal securities offering and stuff like that. Long before that, I even have his case where he was arrested on my crypto website just because he was involved at the very beginning of ETH. He recommended Bitcoin at 35 cents in 2010. So I, I found him to be interesting fellow that is a true OG and was involved. And so uh, that's why I have all of that on my site. Um, and so we've been obviously pursuing why the SEC, uh, when I say me, we, I'm talking about me, been pursuing uh, why the SEC gave the free pass to ETH, uh, pursued uh, XRP seven and a half years after it's been publicly traded, blah, blah, blah. And so he had claimed that he was part of that, that he was even the architect of the ETH ICO, that he had worked with Joseph Grunfest, who was acting as liaison for the ETH co-founders. All right. And then, obviously, we know that Vitalik and Joe Lubin, they distanced themselves and basically said that Stephen Nayroff had completely exaggerated his role they trivialized his role and whatnot. And what I've stated is I've seen documents that prove that uh, he was not a trivial part of the process and that he was instrumental back then in the process of the ETH ICO and the uh, concept that ETH was a crypto fuel, thus a utility token, and should be exempt from securities laws or whatnot, all that stuff. And so, um, and I'm starting to see more documents uh, of his involvement in that. So I publicly said, listen, I can tell you this, those claims that he wasn't really involved are bullshit. That is a foregone conclusion. Now, maybe they distanced themselves because of the allegations against him and they just, that's what you do. And so they, oh, they don't want to be associated you know, with those allegations, but those allegations were dropped by the government. And the most interesting thing that caught my eye is many of you know, in addition to the XRP case, I represent Naomi Brockwell, who's a journalist in the library case and got involved in that case. And this has all been public record that, and it's in their motions, when I say they, meaning Steve Nayaroff and his attorney's motions to dismiss the case against him, 
um, a claim that when Steve was arrested, he was placed in a van and told that you need to give up the dirt, if you have any, on these people. And there was a list of names, right? Uh, Vitalik was one. Uh, Naomi Brockwell was one. Caitlin Long was one. And that, I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, why, why would the government, the FBI, be talking about a journalist, you know, who uh, is completely... Uh, just trying to educate people on privacy and blockchain technology, blah, blah, blah. And so, and Caitlin Long, uh, why are they interested in someone like that? And so that's what got my interest. And so that's why I got involved. And uh, that's really what I can say right now. I'll let Steve speak for himself. Uh, a quick question, John, just for, for anyone that hasn't been following the story. Why did, what, what are the allegations against Steven and, and why did he get, get arrested? Well, it was an allegation of extortion uh, that he was involved in an ICO of a company and he extorted uh, the founder. The turns out that his co-conspirator, alleged co-conspirator, was a government agent from the beginning and was was uh, working uh, with the government from the start in Steve's claim. And I also said that I understand why Steve feels this way. I understand why he feels he was targeted and so you know he believes that he was targeted and sort of taken out uh, um, uh basically reputationally I mean, taken out but the bottom line is when he refused to plead guilty and refused to give up any type of he said hey i don't have uh i'm not going to make up dirt on these people and i'm not going to go down that route and he said i want my jury trial even though they're pursuing decades in prison and the government on its own filed a dismissal with prejudice. And so that makes you wonder why would the government indict someone, go through that lens, basically say that he's a criminal extorting people, going to uh, all of this. And then just when he demands a trial, dismiss it with prejudice, meaning they can never bring it again. And I find that, to be something of fascinating as someone that that makes me curious. I've been a former federal prosecutor, so I asked myself, well, sometimes you dismiss cases because you want to protect a victim. You don't want to put them on the stand or something like that. Or you want the person cooperates and you go after bigger fish um, or you, there's other investigations involved and their trial will impede other investigations. So there are legitimate reasons, objectively, that the government could um, dismiss a case. But this doesn't seem to fit in that category. And then when you add choke point 2.0 and you add all this anti-crypto stuff and then you look at behind the scenes what was going on with the SEC, you know, you don't have to have a tinfoil hat on to start asking questions. And so my goal is to get to the effing truth one way or the other, whether that's. So, I mean, let's just, I mean, John, maybe let's just go through it. So the first set of charges they had against him, the reason why they actually arrested him and indicted him in the first place was extortion charges. And that was based on allegations by founders of a certain project that Stephen actually extorted them. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I read, I remember at the time I read the whole charge sheet and it was like, he said something along the lines of if uh, allegedly, according to them, said something along the lines of, if you don't pay me my fees, your project will be, will fail, will get destroyed or something. I don't remember the exact charge, but it was something along those lines. And they claim, and they paid him and they claim that they, that he extorted them to pay him by threatening the, the project. Um, and I think also important that, to know that he's been fighting this for, I think, two or three years. And only recently have they come out and effectively dropped, dropped charges against him. Or, or, or I don't know what the right legal jargon is. But, um, basically, there's no more charges against him, so to speak. Yeah, they dismissed it uh, with prejudice. There's two types of ways to dismiss a case. You could dismiss it, which means you're free to bring it up. Uh, as within the statute of limitations thereafter, um, or you dismiss it with prejudice, meaning it's with prejudice. The government can never charge you uh, those same crimes ever again for the rest of your life. And so the government dismissed it with prejudice. And yes, when you read the 
the complaint and the allegations. It's just like anything else. When the government reads it, you know, I, I'm I'm experienced enough know not to let a government filing completely inflame me. But when you read it, it's going to sound bad, right? I'm sure Steve wishes I didn't have it on my damn website, but you know, I put it up there uh, because it's an interesting case. Uh, and I'll make sure I put up the dismissal with prejudice as well. But it's just like, uh, you know, when you read the ripple case, the inflammatory language they used made it sound like a fraud, right? But they didn't charge fraud. And so you got to not, you just got to ignore the noise and stick to facts. And so, um, those allegations from what I know, the question is, did the government have Steve saying that, or was that the co-conspirator mm. who was working as a government agent who claimed he said it? Those are the things that, you know, never got flushed out as far as I know, because mm. when Steve wanted, you know, this is what happens when you're, when you say I'm not pleading guilty and I'm not cooperating with the government, I want my trial. The next thing that happens is discovery. I want to know government, you got to give me everything there is, including exculpatory information that shows my innocence as well as my guilt. You got to give me everything you have. I want to know all the communications, who were the FBI agents who were handling this guy? Uh, why, what emails related to those names that you asked me? And when they started going down that road, the government was like, hey, we're dismissing the case. That is just generally speaking for someone like me causes me pause. And so also it's regardless, very, it's very, regardless very, of very Steve's innocence or guilt, I want to know the truth. You know what I'm saying? What, Go ahead. what percentage of cases would you say end like this of, of government after the government decided to indict you? What percentage of cases would you say end like this? Less than half a percent? Less than one percent? I, I would, I'd be dead. It'd be a wild guess, but I'd say it's, it's certainly less than 1%. Uh, and it could be very fraction of one before you like go through a grand jury, you get an indictment, you secure the indictment, you execute the search warrant, you start taking resources of the government. And then you just, you just stop again. I'm an objective person. Let me make it clear. There could be valid reasons in other cases where you dismiss it because there is a higher objective, right? Protection mm -hmm. of witnesses, victims. Uh, you don't want to interfere with a much bigger investigation. But none of those seem present in this case, which makes you think, did the government just say, hey, here's, here's 90 years in prison, pal, unless you play ball with us. And that person says, F you, I want my jury trial, and I want to know everything that you have related to me. And the government says, uh, we're going to walk away now. So that I remember I remember actually speaking to Stephen after this, and he, when he told me about, you know, Stephen's a pretty eccentric guy. When Stephen told me about this at the time, I thought, this sounds absolutely crazy. I said to him, Stephen, what do you mean? And he says, they want information on everyone. They want the dirt on everyone. And I said, well, who's everyone? And he said, it's everyone, it's, it's Vitalik, it's, 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 and he, he listed off a, a list of the biggest people in crypto. And he said, they want information, everyone. He said, I, and he said, I decided I'm not going to give it to them and I'm going to fight it till the end. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, this sounds like a crazy, crazy, crazy story because he's going there for, I mean, they're going after him for extortion. And now they're asking him to basically rat out every single, you know, uh, um, person in crypto now just some background for those people who don't know much about steven so steven has been around crypto for a long time he's got a legal background and he claims to have been the architect of the reason why ethereum is a utility token and not a security so he claims uh that he was the one that came out up with the mechanism whereby Ethereum is used as gas on the network and therefore makes it a utility token and not a securities token. Now, again, he, he will, you know, he can, he can tell you the story himself. I have read the, um, the book around Ethereum. I can't remember what it's called. It's written by Camilla. Just uh, the name escapes me. I don't know if any, anybody, uh, one of the speakers remembers the name. Um, so, he, you know, there they do talk about him being involved very, 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 very early in the days where um, Charles Hoskinson was there and, um, uh, all the all the, the the original founders, 
And Stephen claims to have been the one to come up with the concept of a utility of ETH being used as a token to power the network and therefore making it a utility. And that effectively means that he created the whole category. If that's true, then you know his breakthrough uh, would have been the breakthrough that created the whole category of these gas tokens or tokens that power a network. And there's a... It was the infinite machine, by the way. I didn't want to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, the, the, the infinite machine, exactly. Um, and um, so Stephen claims to have created that. Now, there's, there's a lot of... Um, you know, if you speak to people like Charles and people like Vitalik, there's, there's a blurred line as to what Stephen did and what Stephen didn't do. There's a lot of people, they, they all acknowledge that Stephen, that Stephen was involved in the old days. But I think they're big, um, uh, uh, there's a big divide between, between all of them as to what each other did. So, you know, like if you, um, if you, if you ask what Charles did and you ask what uh, Vitalik did and stuff like that, they, they, they effectively created Ethereum by renting this house at a conference, effectively. And there were a whole lot of people working on them, and, and all of them effectively became uh, founders. And that included people uh, like Charles, people like um, uh, Gavin Wood, people like Joe Lubin. Um, and Stephen claims that he was involved that early. Now, all of them agree that he was involved that early, but there's some disagreement as to the... the the extent of his involvement and whether the extent of his involvement is as he says, or as, you know, or, or, or be slightly less than that. So it ran. Yeah. Ran. Let me, let me add this, which is uh, he's been making these claims long before today, just so everyone knows uh, long before I'm talking three years ago, I put that crypto videos up and he explained that he was working with Joe Grunfest. Now we know that John Gr Joe Grunfest was involved and we know he was working as a liaison for the ETH founders. Uh, and Steven in one of those videos explains that he was talking to Joe and said, listen, you got to understand it's really not a security. It's, it's like fuel on this network. And then, According to Stephen, Joe Grunfest went back to the SEC and came back and said they love that concept and want to know more. Again, whether I'm not, I'm just telling you that he was making these statements years and years ago, and also he made statements years ago that Vitalik would sleep on his couch regularly uh, uh, when he was uh, in the United States, and everything that Rand said. And so again. You know, I think that the question here is, did the founders like Joe and Vitalik, uh, did they distance themselves because of these allegations that came out? And oh, now we have to minimize and trivialize his role. And we're for those reasons or are there other reasons to, you know, trivialize it? But no one can refute that he was there at the beginning. And no. And, and I can tell you, I've seen documents mm. that prove that prove he was instrumental in a couple mm. major developments that had to take place before the ICO. I can. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to say I want to say something else. I, I knew Stephen, and I, I've known Stephen for a long time, and I knew him before these, the, before this indictment, and before his arrest. And I, I mean, one thing I want to point out here um, is that Stephen was a very wealthy guy from crypto before this happened, and when this happened, it made him ready. So I, I watched what actually happened to him. It made Stephen radioactive. Obviously, everybody that was involved with Stephen quickly got uninvolved. Everyone that had him on his cap table and, and, and as an advisor obviously removed him. So they cut off effectively what the U.S. law did. Cut, they made a very big public announcement. They effectively made him radioactive in, in, in crypto land. So cut off any kind of income generating capacity that he had. And then I'm not sure how much he... he, um, he uh, um, spent, but I know that he had to liquidate a whole lot of assets to be paying lawyers who obviously, you know, wanted payment to represent him and to get him out of this. And effectively, it took someone who was very, very wealthy, and I'm talking to you like really, really wealthy, and got him to a point where if he wasn't as wealthy as he was, and I can tell you that, that I don't know exactly how much wealth he had, but I know that he had wealth more than 99% of people on this Twitter spaces. And I can tell you that he spent a big, 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 big part of his um, of his uh, uh, wealth, trying to defend himself and get get himself out of this. Anyway, when the charges were dropped, I think that a I think maybe one one thousand 
of the people that that heard about the charges being left on him actually heard about the charges being dropped. Um, second thing is, he, you know, the problem is that he's still now radioactive. Now, look, I don't know whether he was guilty or innocent. I think what the what what we know now is that he's, he's probably not guilty. Or, or you know, up until he's let, let's assume that he's innocent until proven guilty. What I do want to show is how when something like this happens, you effectively destroy someone beyond the point of return because. I mean, you know, would you have Stephen? Would you have Stephen Rayoff now as an advisor to your project? Probably the answer is no, right? Um, and so I think the damage that was done here to them—they've destroyed him. They've, they've, you know, he's he's a he's a he's he's a, uh, a persona non grata when it comes to crypto. Um, I, I, everything Rand said is is on point. I, I'll tell you the one thing that surprised me, and I, I got no problem saying it because I've said it publicly. Uh, when I was talking to Stephen. You know, uh, being an architect or being that early, um, I assumed that, you know, he was a recipient of the pre-mine that everyone is aware of. Um, and he said, no, I actually was in it for the cause, John, and uh, I, I declined it. And, and I'll tell you what I said. I said, bullshit. Right. And then he was like, dude, you of all people should know that sometimes you do shit for free just because you believe in it. And I was like, OK, well, show me. And he showed me proof. That yeah, it's true. That I've seen it. He, he showed, he showed it. me proof that that he uh, did not accept any of the pre mine. And I'm not saying that it would have been wrong for him to. I'm just saying that would that he didn't accept yeah. it. I think so he at did that land point, up, That surprised me. I think he did land up buying a sizable uh, portion of ETH at a at a very very low price. Um, but I think he I think there were I think there were sour grapes until I'm not going to call it the end, but until this point. Around the fact that he didn't actually take the pre mine because he didn't, I don't think he realized, you know, how, just how big this pre mine would be. And um, I think for him, it was there was a lot of, of pride um, uh, of of creating this industry. And I, you know, I, again, I know Stephen quite well because I lived in New York and he was in New York and he was in crypto and I was in crypto, and we we started speaking quite a bit. And I went to his house a few times actually before this happened. Obviously, I haven't seen him since this happened. Um, and you know, Stephen. Stephen wants to be recognized. He wants to be remembered. And I think he feels quite um, quite hard done by that he wasn't added on as a founder of Ethereum. And he also feels quite hard done by that some of the OGs in Ethereum won't recognize just how big his role is. Um, I've tried to do my own research. And I've said to him, you know, like I've asked people like Vitalik and, and others, I've asked him, like, who came up with that mechanism? And no one will give me a straight answer as to who came up with the mechanism of the utility token. And Stephen's the only guy that has actually claimed and said, you know what, I actually came up with, the, with this mechanism of the utility token. And I know that Camilla, who, who wrote the book, The Infinite Machine, which is, by the way, a very, very, very good book. If you haven't read it, um, you know, like I, I really think that that's one of the books that you really, really, really have to read uh, in crypto. It's like, you know, if you, there's that one and there's the one, the book that was written about Charles Shrem. Um, and and the Winklevoss brothers, which is um, God, the, the name of that book escapes me. Uh, Scott, maybe you can fill in for me. What is it? Bre is it called Breaking Bitcoin? No. Um, uh, oh God, no. Uh, give me a minute. Um, it, yeah. So anyway, so, so so that's the story. We're trying to we're trying to get Stephen on. Uh, I'm quite surprised that he actually agreed to come on because I know that Bitcoin there's still billionaires. Some kind of oh yes, yeah, yeah. There we go. But, but, I think that like right, I've got a couple of questions on the story, and, and I want to kind of dig into a couple of things that were mentioned in the article and get John whether you know they they, they mean anything. Uh, but before that, just to understand the story, and I know a lot of people joined since we 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 started discussing this. So essentially, um, Stephen is likely was part of the founding team at Ethereum and, and created the the whole concept of utility token, designed the utility token aspect of it. Then there were allegations with another project, completely separate. What year was that? The allegations of uh, of extortion? Probably around nineteen ish. So it was just before COVID. So is it probably when, when did COVID happen? Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. So probably around twenty nineteen. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So there's the allegations of extortion with another project. Now, before these allegations, um, was the Ethereum Foundation distancing themselves from Naryov? Well, let's not. Let's just say that there was. A, I don't know if they were distancing themselves from from Stephen, but certainly he believed that they weren't acknowledging just how big his role is. He was a very prominent member of the ETH community, but you got to remember what you were dealing with here. 
Stephen is a wheeler dealer second to none. He is a salesperson second to none. Uh, he was involved in every single crypto project. He was an advisor to, you know, or any project that was launching, he was on the cap table or he was an advisor. He was prominent. And um, yeah, I think that there was a little bit of like, like animosity between the East guys. And like, they almost like got upset with Stephen for being so, I want to use the word greedy. Sell grifter, grifter, okay. grifter is probably the probably, that's word. the most aggressive yeah. one, but okay, grifty, okay, grifty, and then and then grifty. then we got the allegations of extortion with one project, but then um, John in the article did mention about um, a person and 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 you know, we really want Stephen to come on here, so the team is calling him, maybe Mr. Time or got the time zone wrong, but uh, there's a there's one. Um, there's either that or his lawyer is bitching him out. <laughs> it could be. So, well, you, you know, yesterday, yesterday when I reached out to Stephen, I just I reached, I reached out to him. As I, as I mentioned, I've, I've known him quite well. I've spent some time with him, and he said, "I can't discuss the legal case, but I will soon." Do you want to discuss? Just wait a little longer. You have the biggest uh, crypto cases in, in history. He says, uh, "I said I want to discuss the Vitalik thing." He says, "If it's more than him, but yes." And I said, "Today," he says. No, just saying I can't discuss it yet. I'll discuss everything about crypto, but I can't discuss anything about the case. So, oh, okay. you know, I just, uh, yeah, I, I was surprised to hear that he's actually coming on, on, on the show today because, uh, you know, I, I just like, you know, I know he's being quite smart. Also, remember, Stephen is a lawyer. Stephen has a legal background in the US. And so he knows exactly, you know, you're not dealing with Bitboy Crypto here where he, he'll open his mouth against the advice of, of his lawyers. Stephen is, is, you know, much more calculated in that regard. I think he, you know, so the, he just got off sorry, just one case. And right, quickly, on, on the allegations that came in in 2020, 2019, um, there was an, an FBI informant that was behind the allegations. I think John touched on it earlier. Where is the FBI coming to yeah, this? Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the alleged co-conspirator uh, was an FBI informant, coincidentally out of Rhode Island, where, uh, where I live currently. And so... Um, and as it turns out, weren't the allegations was, around the FBI guy as well? What, what, is, if I remember correctly, his name was Michael, and he turned out to be some kind of like like real fraud. Is that the one you, you're talking about? Uh, I, if it's the same uh, lady guy, if that's who you're talking about, then, then so I remember there was right. a guy called Michael, someone or other, and that Michael turned out that he wasn't what he said he was, if I remember correctly. Um, he turned out that he wasn't what he said he was, and you know he wasn't the, this uh, solvent old guy that had worked with the FBI. But again, you talk, you, you're trying to get me back to a place of uh, many, many years ago, which I, to be honest, I can't really remember the exact details. But to, uh, to, we were to, trying to get him on, but I, yeah. So I'm just going to go back to the story, Ryan and, and John. Um, so it, it just gets, gets more and more twisted, and then what we have now is that the charges are dropped without prejudice. Which means so so with with, sorry, with prejudice means that, that, that he cannot be charged uh, again on these uh, on these charges on these allegations, um, which is unusual, and it could indicate something's being hidden um, or some other reason because it, you know you mentioned earlier John that he was asked to give up a lot of information on various people that include Vitalik, and it was potentially, and at least what I understand, obviously you can't say as, as explicitly as I am, but potentially the FBI, the authorities wanted more information on the people behind Ethereum and, and, and people within the crypto ecosystem um, in those early days. Oh, that was not that early. That was not early days. It's like 2019, 2020. Um, so in recent days, um, which is a bit sus. Yeah, but I think, I think, yeah, I think what happened was, I think what happened was they tried to get information um around you're talking about early days they try to get a whole lot of information from people who had been around in the early days so they kind of they kind of said look we know you've got information on a whole lot of, of names and to be honest i kind of know the list of names i just don't want to mention them because you know i think they're all innocent and by, by bringing them up here i could in, in, imply that you know the fbi was at one stage potentially trying to 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 take them down i don't want to be involved in the middle of that but i remember the list of names um and uh, he said, "Look, I, I refuse to actually give you guys to give you guys any information." He said, "I refuse to give me any information." To be honest, when he said that, I actually thought that he was making up the story. I thought like, this just sounds so far fetched that the FBI would arrest you for for um, for uh, extortion because a certain project, which I knew who the project was and I met the people in the project, um, uh, reported you, and it, you know, they, and they're asking you for a list of names. Otherwise, they, they're telling you that you're going to spend a lot of time in. That just sounds crazy. That just sounds 
I mean, you know, if someone says that to you, that's, but I mean, as time went by and, and as John says, you know, if you look at the outcome of what actually happened, I mean, it, it does seem plausible that maybe, maybe, maybe this would have happened. Well, it sounds like a, oh, let's be honest, it sounds like a made-for-TV movie when someone is arrested uh, on the street, they're put in a van and basically told, uh, you're looking at uh, multiple years in, in prison unless you, you know, do what we want, give us what we want. That that alone, and then when you look at the names, and, and I respect Rand for not giving names, I, I asked... Caitlin Long, when I had her on Crypto Law TV last week, I brought it up to her and said, were you aware that your name was mentioned? And she was like, I, I learned about it, and it was, you know, surprising and shocking. And so some of those names are, are people who are, you know, stewards. Uh, of, yeah, big names. Right. Big I mean, names. I, 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 but you wouldn't question their credibility. You wouldn't question anything about them. They have the best reputations, you know, a Caitlin Long and Naomi Brockwell and others. And so, you know, that is what is the most surprising. Uh, John, I've just got one question for you, if you've, if you've got a minute. Um, and then we'll, okay, perfect. John, the, the question I wanted to dig into is one from the, uh, uh, Scott, I can hear you breathe into the mic. Um, the, the article talks about, um, I know the article, you know, could be just shitty reporting, but they said that you have um, possession of documents that reveal malpractices within the SEC, as well as during the Ethereum ICO. Um, not sure what that's about because it's nothing to do with what you've discussed earlier. Is that inaccurate reporting or can you shed more light on what they mean by that? Uh, to be perfectly candid, I, I have no idea uh, what they're saying. Uh, what I tweeted out and maybe what they're referencing is that I said that uh, there are documents when you take everything in consideration, plus what we've learned, the him and emails and all that, it makes um, – uh, let's just say Hinman has a lot more answers to give if he's ever questioned about uh, that speech, the drafts and all of that. And that's what I was alluding to, that everything we've learned, um, there's other things that when you put all the puzzles together, you'd be like, wow, that, that just makes the speech even more unusual or why he did what he did, uh, which, of course, I believe leads to, you know, the conflicts and maybe where he's working today. From one crazy story to another, uh, John, I appreciate you, you going through this and explaining it to us. And I do want to give a special shout out to to Ben, uh, Ben Mesrick, who's uh, in the audience. Um, some of the best books, nonfiction books. Um, most of you know the the uh, the Antisocial Network or the Accidental Billionaires. Or, of course, the famous book. Um, so the Antisocial Network became the social network. And I think the Accidental Billionaires became Dumb Money, but I could be wrong on that one. But just massive. Oh, Ben, how are you, sir? Hey, man, how you doing? Good, man, good. We've gone through two stories. Each one could have its own book. We talked about the allegations against Ethereum and, and Vitalik. And now we're going to go through uh, BitBoy and, and the, the drama that's unfolding there that keeps getting crazier every week, which is you know, the, the TMZ version of crypto. Are you going to write? Yeah, are you going to write a book about Ben Armstrong? I mean, this is this is. A, I think this is where this is heading. Right? Uh, well, let me first just say I, I love what you guys do. I think you guys are doing the most awesome stuff on Spaces, and I I drop in all the time and listen to you guys from the background. Um, I don't know. I've just I was just sort of watching the BitBoy story uh, here and there, and I had a little interaction with him when I was thinking about writing a, a book about FTX before Michael Lewis jumped in to do it first. Um, so I'm just sort of watching from the sidelines. It's some wildness going on. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, running around with dumb money right now, which, uh, hopefully some of you will go see dumb money this weekend. But, um, I think the BitBoy thing is nuts. I don't know what's going on. I don't know the details that I know you guys know. So I, I wrote an entire newsletter today about uh, dumb money, man. It's awesome. Oh, awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. I think it's, uh, using it as a, uh, using it as a guide to tell people to eventually take profit, whether they're, uh, really passionately uh, involved or just uh, superficially traded. Well, I mean, you know, you get the hardest thing in the world to do is to sell when something is skyrocketing. It's just the people I interviewed for the thing. It's, it's truly emotional, especially when you're part of what appears to be a movement. 
you know, the whole GME thing and Roaring Kitty. It was a an emotional kind of fight back against Wall Street. And it, it was more than just, you know, trying to make money. And so selling was the hardest thing in the world for anybody to do. Nobody nobody wanted to sell. <laughs> so it's pretty Unless well. you'd be a pariah, right? Ben, ben, I've got a very, very, very good idea for you. We can make millions and millions and millions of dollars. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, sure. You, you and I can make millions and millions of dollars. Okay, l- listen to this. We do a sequel dumb money yeah okay yeah we call it dumber money so it's like it's like the the better one right so it's, you do dumb money and then we do dumber money <laughs> we talk about people listen to this this is going to be good we talk about people that bought nfts because they thought that nfts would really pick the pictures jpegs of punks and apes and dogs would actually one day be worth billions and they were buying to part of a culture. What do you say? <laughs> well, personally, I love NFTs, so I'm hoping that it's not dumber money in the long run. But uh, the NFT market definitely took a, a major, major fall for sure. Um, I think that there's a place for digital collectibles. But um, but yeah, it's it's uh, hard to imagine you know, the billions and billions and billions of dollars that, that, you know, that was hoped for that these would reach. But um, I, I think, think there's a lot you, still you know, to be said you know about it. Rand, I think you know the more, I think the more I hear you talk about it, the more I'm itching to start buying them again. <laughs> well, listen, I'm not, a, I'm not, listen, I used to own pets.com. I do not give financial advice to anybody. I have owned the worst stocks in the world. And every stock I, I own I pets.com as well, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. That's, Taxi, all, all the fun ones in the late nineties. Exactly, I've I've gone I've gone through every bus there is. I'm I'm, uh, I'm I love crypto. I love NFTs. I love, um, <coughs> sorry, GME. I love I love anything that the people get behind. And I really really believe that value is much more in how people feel about something than it is in the fundamentals. And I think we're reaching a a place in in life where uh, thing a stock ticker like GME is no longer tethered. Um, to the fundamentals, it's more tethered to the the mass of people who really want to see it go up. And I think the rationality has left the market for better or worse. And it's much more important what communities want to do than it is, you know, what what a bank sheet says. I'm just trying to find where I can Amazing. watch Dumb Money, by the way. I've just saved the trailer to watch it. it, it it's not on Netflix. No, um, no, no. It's wide in theaters this coming weekend. So it's uh, I think it comes out. Yeah. Friday, Thursday in some markets, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We've done a limited release for the last two weeks because the stars, all the actors have been on strike. So it's it's a difficult time to launch a movie. So we're launching it a little bit differently. So it's been in a few hundred theaters since last week, but now it'll be in thousands of theaters starting this Thursday. Okay. Um, so it, it's not going to be on Netflix or whatever for a couple more months. Oh, okay. Hey, can I just... Can I just- have a quick question here, Ben. Um, sure. First of all, support your local theater. Go see a movie in a local theater. Um, ben, as a, I'm I'm in the Writers Guild. I'm a screenwriter. I'd I'd love mm-hmm. to just connect or something like that. I'll pay you for your time, grab a coffee with you, whatever. But uh, <laughs> I really appreciate your work and everything you do in the space. And I have not read the the WGA contract yet, but yeah, we're all scrambling to get back to work. Yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy time. So I mostly write books. I've written like 20 books at this point. I did the book that was the movie, The Social Network, um, about Facebook. And then I did the book that was the movie 21 about the MIT Blackjack team. But as a screenwriter, I wrote for the show Billions for a number of years. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful that we've reached this point. So many people were out of work for so long. And honestly, the studio's needed to give in to a lot of these demands. The, the writers were looking for a way to continue to make a living as a writer. And it's just, it's crazy that that these these studios are these giant organizations with millions and millions of dollars, and they live on the work of the writers and the actors and then all of the other guilds. So in the end, they had did have to make a deal, um, but it dragged out a long time and a lot of people were in a lot of trouble. So I'm glad we're at the end point and hopefully the actors will make a deal pretty soon so we can you know get actors out and start making things again i mean next year there's gonna be a lot less shows to watch because of this strike and i think um i think there's a real need for good stories out there can't wait for the yeah, i must say guys if you haven't if you haven't read uh ben's book bitcoin billion is i think it was called it, i mean it really is one of the foundations of this industry like that that story of charlie shrim and the winkle Winkle-Boss brothers yeah. is just i think one of the Winklevoss, sorry, Winklevoss Brothers um, is really, Winklevi. really. Winklevi twins. Yeah, they're, like they're like cacti. Everybody it's the, it's, yeah, it's the only like it's the only book I've read in crypto that's 
I didn't read just to learn about a specific technology. It's learned, learned, read it because just it's such a good book to read. It's not a boring book. The only one I've ever read. Uh, it's, so, an incred- it's, it's so well articulated read- as well. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I read, you. The, I read that book whilst I was spending a weekend at in St. Kitts with Roger Vith. And so, you know, he's oh. mentioned a lot. Well, what he's did, mentioned what did Roger he's, think of the book? What did Roger think? So, he, no, so, so, look, I went to visit him and, you know, when, like when I was, when I was, you know, on the plane on the way there and while I spent, you know, in the evenings while I had some free time, I was reading that book. And it was funny because I was reading the book, but I was, I was you know, I was with Roger. And the, the book talks a lot about what Roger, where, where Roger's roles were and stuff like that. And it, like, I just... I can't tell you how amazing it was, the experience for me reading that book, being with Roger, you know, being entertained with, by him for a full weekend on, you know, in the island where he lives. It was, uh, it was, it was absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing. I think one of the best books I've read in crypto. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, that was the story of the Winklevi twins and how they went from their battle with Zuckerberg, um, who they felt had basically fucked them over enormously, to uh, becoming multi-multi-billionaires in the world of Bitcoin and literally... It, it, it starts with the settlement agreement. So right after the social network ends, um, they actually asked Mark, you know, just to meet with them in a room to, to, to work it out. And Mark said, I'll meet with just one of you. And it turns out later it was because he was afraid they were going to beat him up. <laughs> and it's a true story. It's and, amazing. And they were like, well, you, you don't think it's one of us can beat you story. up? <laughs> and, it's uh, amazing. And basically, yeah. And, and they it's settled for that story. $5 million. Yeah. They settled for $65 million, um, but they, the Winklevi took it in stock. It ended up being worth $500 million. And, um, and then they basically wanted to become VCs, but nobody would take their money because everyone's end game in, in, in Silicon Valley is to sell your company to Facebook. So instead, they went to Ibiza at a party, and when they were on the beach, and some dude walked up to them and said, have you guys ever heard about Bitcoin? And literally, the reason they bought into Bitcoin is they had tried to check into their hotel in Ibiza and they had tried to pay by wire and the money hadn't arrived and they couldn't check in. And so the idea of this form of money that was instantly transferable, that didn't have a middleman, that there's no Zuckerbergs involved in, appealed to them and they literally bought 200,000 Bitcoin <laughs> and, and then joined up with Charlie Schramm. It's a crazy I need to go to the story. beach. Yeah. To the beach. Hanging on a beach is always yeah, a way to go. We hope to make that in a movie as well. Um, that's kind of up to the Winklevite twin at this point. There, I mean, there, I mean, that's the main story in the book, but the book has a lot of like side stories that are happening at the same time, like the Charlie Shrem story. Like, the, you know, you cover the Charlie Shrem story in, in, in great detail in the book, you know, because, because yeah, they're involved I spent in- a lot of time with Charlie. You know, he lived in his mother's basement in Brooklyn, New York, and he was like 18 years old and he became kind of the king of, of, of Bitcoin because his whole at the time, and you guys remember this, you, you couldn't get Bitcoin, it, you had to go to um, what do we call Mount Gox, right? And you had to wire your money to this crazy site in Japan. Um, and so he started the first exchange where you could just buy Bitcoin. Unfortunately, people used him and his site to, to buy drugs on Silk Road. And there was a paper, dr- paper trail of him. So he was kind of the first guy to go to jail for selling people Bitcoin. Um, Charlie's a great guy. I think he's, a, he's brilliant. And uh, I think, uh, you know, he was one of the people who, who, who made Bitcoin possible um, to, to a mainstream audience. I remember being, I remember, as I said, like a lot of side stories. I remember in the book, uh, you described how Charlie was actually arrested. Where I think he came yeah. back from somewhere and he got arrested at the airport. And I remember like it, the way that you described it was like, I, I had anxiety. I was, I was reading the book and I had this anxiety of like, holy shit, this guy's been arrested. You know, like, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, they grabbed him in that. the JFK airport. They shoved him in a cell. And the way the way they work, the, the the when they arrest you is they basically threaten you with ridiculous amounts of charges. Like if he had gone to trial, he could have been facing you know twenty years in jail minimum. Um, so he makes a deal to do two years, and that's that's what they do if they get you for anything. But um, you know, he he was kind of his own worst enemy in that there was emails and stuff where he said things when someone asked him, "Oh, people are using." you to buy drugs he was like great <laughs> and these these emails were kind of hard to get away from but um you know I, I try to write my nonfiction like it's thrillers i try to write it like it's a movie so even though I'm, I'm doing a form of journalism my goal is how do i make this get to the big screen every time i'm sitting down to write a book so i try and do it in as much dramatic a way i can 
Charlie has to be the most gracious, understanding, and easygoing person considering what he's been through. He's a close friend of mine, and it just mm. always is astounding to me how much he still just loves life, appreci appreciates everything, and remains so incredibly positive. Uh, he's yeah. a great example. You know what he said to me? You know what he said to me? He said, he, he said to me once, uh, I spoke to him once, and he said to me, I love America. I love the fact that I was actually uh, detained for doing what I did. And if I could see the judge that actually gave me the, the penalty – he says, I'd hug, I'd hug the judge. I mean, that's like wow. how optimistic he is about this. That's, that's great. Yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, I spent time with him when I was writing the book, and he's always been you know, very gracious with me. And him and the Winklevi got into a real battle. Um, they, they were battling, and, and Charlie would say, why are, this, you know, why, why are they coming after me? I'm, I'm just, I, I don't think he's a bad guy at all. I think he's a, he's a good person who really got Bitcoin and crypto before a lot of other people did. He was so early in the game. Um, um, and um, so I hope he continues to do well. Is it is um, it plans for what are your thoughts it, it, after spending time? Oh, go ahead, Ron. With Roger, sorry, uh, spending time with Roger and spending time with uh, I think I think you must must have spent some time with Eric Fuhis because I think he was also quite a, a prominent uh, he played a prominent role in the book. Um, what are what are your uh, what are your like after spending time with those two? What are your feelings about them? Yeah, so Eric uh, Voorhees, I interviewed for the book, and my understanding is he liked the book a lot. Uh, at least he did when it came out, um, and he was always very, very nice about it. You know, he's he's a guy who's a, a, a super at the time, anyways, and I assume still very much a, a libertarian, very much a believer in no borders and in sort of this whole idea of, of um, crypto and Bitcoin being a, a freeing mechanism, like it's a way to sort of make the world more free and and give each person an individual power and, and not have a government be in between. So, you know, at the time of writing it, I haven't really stayed in touch with Eric at all. And I'm assuming he's I know there's he's been in the news a lot more lately, um, but I haven't haven't followed with him that much. Um, so Roger was really um, you know, someone I interviewed as well and someone I think was fascinating. You know, his background is crazy. It could have been a book in all in itself. Um, and he was really somewhat of an anarchist at the time where he was he was fighting the fighting the fight. Um, he was very different than the Winklevi. I mean, they, they represented two different um, ways of looking at crypto. The Winklevi are the buttoned up suits and ties guys who wanted to be part of the you know, New York financial system. They want Bitcoin to be part of the system. Um, and they want to be regulated to some degree. They want it to be, uh, at the time anyways, <laughs> I don't know if they've changed their minds recently. Um, and, uh, and Roger was more, you know, burn it all down kind of thing. Um, and then Eric was somewhere in the middle. But at the so time... Roger's, you got to look at Roger's background, I think. You know, if you, if you understand, like, what happened to Roger, then you, know, you right. may understand why he came in as that kind of, of person. If I remember correctly, I think Roger got arrested for... I don't know the exact charge, but something like dealing in explosives or something like yes. that. He was selling, and selling yeah, I think he was, he was selling, selling fireworks or something. He was selling fireworks over the internet and they called it fire, selling explosives over the internet. And he kind of got nailed on a, on a, a, a very tough charge. Um, and while in prison, he started reading up on all his sort of these, these, you know, uh, German um, financial uh, theorists and all this kind of stuff. And he, he had a really bad taste in his mouth about what the government can do when it when it comes after you. Um, so, yeah, you, coming from his point of view, you know, you could see why he came and then decided to leave the country entirely and, and move overseas and, and, and want to, you know, build himself. He became known as, as Bitcoin Jesus. He was Bitcoin Jesus because he funded almost all of the original Bitcoin companies. Um, and he was one of Charlie's first partners as well. So, yeah, I mean, you can see and why he, he lost. Yeah. He lost his status, I think, as Bitcoin Jesus, and he lost his popularity in the space. Because when I joined the space, you know, he was one of the biggest people in the space. And then he, I guess, took what you could say in, in his history as a, the wrong side of the Bitcoin uh, argument, which is, you know, he wanted bigger block sizes and, and then, you know, he, he, he was behind the fork for Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, the original Bitcoin fork to Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And then Let's he not went forget the, that he maintains Bitcoin.com mm -hmm. as if that's yeah. actually about the real Bitcoin and uh, is quietly about Bitcoin Cash. Right. Yeah, I mean, he owns, right. he owns the Bitcoin.com domain. He owns the Bitcoin.com wallet as well. He owns the Bitcoin.com mining pool as well. Um, I think he's, uh, he, he, you know, he, he's, if you take it at this point in time, it seems like he's probably on the weaker point of history. I'm not going to say the wrong side of history, but surely the weaker side of history, which is the Bitcoin cash side of it. 
And uh, mm-hmm. as far as I know, he's still running around the world spread, spreading the, the Bitcoin cash word, you know, the, the, the um, more transactions, cheaper transactions through bigger blocks. And so the Bitcoin community completely cut him out, completely, you know, um, you know I mean, he, he became the enemy as opposed to the friend. Right. Something that uh, strikes me about the the story of the Winklevoss twins is how well that they gave a sense of legitimacy to Bitcoin in the early days. Uh, I wrote a paper on Bitcoin in 2014, so a long time ago, about um, basically about Bitcoin regulation. And at the time, it was synonymous with uh, with uh, you know Mount Gox, Silk Road. Uh, it was seemingly intrinsically linked to just scams and illegality and something i think the winklevoss did uh, the winklevi as you guys say uh very well over the the ensuing years was they added they were almost uh and you speak about it in your book ben they were they were ambassadors and you, you say you know they they wanted to add this kind of legitimacy to it this kind of button up um you know regulated uh, part of the the financial system purpose to Bitcoin. I think in that sense, they, they really succeeded. And I wonder how much, how much of their DNA is in what Bitcoin looks like now, and, you know, with, uh, with TradFi getting involved now and, you know, talk about regulation. I wonder how much, how much they have played a part in that. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think they did add legitimacy at the time. They, they traveled the world um, telling people about Bitcoin at a time when everybody else in Bitcoin we're mostly using it for Silk Road or, or for, you know, stuff that was not going to make the mainstream. So they, they, they were working hard to mainstream it. And they always saw from the beginning that if this is going to blow up and become, you know, the next form of money or whatever, or the next form of gold, it, it has to be accepted by, you know, our parents' generation. It has to be accepted by people who, who aren't, you know, living on an island somewhere, um, but who are willing to sort of work with the system. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that they were a big part of that next step in Bitcoin of going from, you know, being something that only a few hundred thousand people had ever heard of to something that everyone has heard of. Any any stories, Ben, that you've got planned um, or that you're thinking about potentially doing with us FTX or, or the latest yeah. NFT craze? So what happened with FTX? So, you know, when the whole FTX thing went down, I'm always looking for like the next big story. And so the dumb money book was already done and, and that movie was on its way. Um, and I, I know enough people in, in the FTX story that I could have written the story. You know, I had SBF phone number. I was ready to go. And I reached out to my agent and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, what about this? I think I can do the FTX story. And he was just quiet. And I was like, oh, no, because my agent also represents Michael Lewis. <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, Michael's been embedded with with FTX for the past two years. And Lewis was going to be writing this glowing book about how great FTX is and how wonderful SPF is. And and, uh, and then it went the other direction, obviously. But because he's already so deep in the story, I don't want to just go head to head with Michael Lewis on a book. So I'm not doing the FTX story. I definitely thought about it because I write very quickly. You know, I write a book in two months, not in two years. So I could have already had it out by now. But I just decided, you know, he's a great writer. I'm not going to jump into the same room. So I don't plan on doing an FTX story. Are there any other crypto stories that that you're potentially watching on thinking, you know, th- these could actually be good books? Well, I am I am working on a screenplay about the inset in the NFT world um, that I, I've been doing, um, which the, the screenplay is basically done. So that's sort of tangentially related, uh, related to this stuff. Um, I'm always looking, you know, I, I do think Bitcoin billionaires would make a killer movie. And I really, really hope it, it gets made at some point. I think it could really sort of be a primer on, on how this all came about um, and, and would have great commercial appeal. But that's that's something that I'm always looking, figuring out how to how we get the next step with that one. But in terms of another crypto story, I'd only do something if it was different enough. I like to write origin stories like that's my beat is as I look at something. This is going to change the culture 10 years from now. So I'm always looking for the some story that captures like the social network or the GameStop story, which I think is a really important story. And that's what, why I wrote it. And, and, and something big like that, you know, I'm always looking for Bitcoin. And so it would have to be the next whatever. Um, it, there could be a story, but I don't know. I don't know what yet. So I guess the BitBoy story is not big enough. <laughs> the BitBoy story <laughs> is, a, I have no idea what the actual 
details are. It's definitely something that I find compelling, you know, from a, no, you, I think you, it would make a great Ben's being show. Ben's being nice. It's not even big enough. No, for no, the spaces. You, yeah, it's no, really not. I mean, I, 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 yeah, but it's, it is a crazy, crazy, crazy story. To, to, I mean, to understand what's going on with this guy. Like, like every time I think that the story is like dead and he's, it just can't get worse. It just gets a little bit worse. I mean, the guy built a channel with, you know, one point, Five million people. I, I don't know what the exact number is. Was the biggest crypto YouTuber out there on on all metrics. Started doing some really stupid stuff. You know, views started to decline. Um, you know, when uh, stupid stuff equals going to stalk SPF in the Bahamas while the whole FTX thing was going on. Like I thought that was the lowest point uh, for for Bitboy. Uh, going to Alex Mashinsky at a conference and and confronting him live. I thought that was like also quite a low point for Bitboy. And then uh, now it turns out that you know, his staff just had enough of, of, of his shenanigans, tried to take or did take over the business where he owns 67%. So it took over by using the, or took over the business using the operating agreement. They blame this on the fact that he's having an affair with, with a girl called Cassie. And I'm only saying this because he's come out and said the same thing. Um, That's and, not accurate. Uh, you know, and, well, I mean, he came out and said he's with Cassie, right? That has nothing to do with his expulsion from the company. Okay, look, so I listened to TJ's version on Altcoin Daily, which was released uh, last night or this morning, depending on your time zone. And that was one of the things that, that was cited. Again, you'd re- if you read BitBoy's uh, um, account, you know, he, he claims that it's 100% of the story because Cassie is the one that said that he shouldn't negotiate with him and, and, um, and he was the one who was still Wanting to negotiate. Anyway, let's just cut a long story short. Fast forward to last night or this morning, depending on what your time zone is. Bitboy goes to Carlos, who is a, from what I understand, an investor um, in in Bitboy or with Bitboy or, or somewhere along those lines. And Carlos has what used to be Bitcoin's Lamborghini. And Bitcoin goes to his house and streams, but he warns people in advance saying, we're going to stream from somewhere crazy um, join the stream and then he titles the stream something like live streaming from, from Carlos's house. I'll actually, I've actually got all the details here so I'm trying to call the, the file with, with, all the, with all the exact quotes. So his stream said live streaming from Carlos's house in brackets where my Lamborghini is and then he streams from Carlos's house. Um, it's a 37 minute stream a very, very, very emotional stream. It starts off with him you know, screaming, screaming that he's outside Carlos's house, and um, it ends off with him actually being arrested for loitering. Um, obviously, Carlos report, reported the fact that Bitboy was outside his house and acting like a crazy person. Um, Bitboy then gets arrested. You actually hear the the arrest live, and, I, and I'll play some parts for you. I just I wonder if you guys are going to be able to hear it, but let me try and play it for you guys anyway, just so that you can get a feel of what, what was actually going on. This is where Carlos lives, guys. And my streaming for Carlos's house. Carlos has my Lamborghini right here in his, in his garage. So today, guys, I'm going to be live streaming and I'm going to be telling the entire story of Carlos Diaz, who Carlos Diaz is. I'm going to be talking about all the people he's affiliated with. I'm going to be talking about how he got into my building. I'm going to talk about all of it. Hope you guys are ready. This is Car- he just answered the door. So I know this is him for, for sure, right here. I'm not scared of you, Carlos. I'm not scared. Anyway, so he arrives there in his, in his pickup truck. Uh, and sometime in the video, he says, I'm just going to go and put something in the truck. And he goes and he puts something in the truck. And he puts something in the back seat. And, and you can kind of hear that there's somebody in the truck. Um, and what happens later in the in the in the um, in the video is that you hear that you see the cops coming, and I'll, I'll fast forward that part so you can just hear it. In front of Midnight's house, okay, and then he tells them, "Better hurry up quickly here." He told me he went out there and roughed up Midnight's, fought him and beat him up, and Maxine Waters, a politician, told him to kill Midnight's with a fentanyl syringe. Hey guys. Now the cops have arrived. Hey, how's it going? Hey, do we have 
Oh, stop. Oh, stop. I couldn't hear. You have a weapon on you. No, I do not. Okay. I do not. So. I have one in my vehicle, but I don't have a weapon on me. Okay. He's wearing, he's wearing a, a man bag or what they call a fanny pack. Okay. The cops call it. Okay. I'll put the phone down. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Put the fanny pack down. Okay. What's going on? What's going on? This man inside of this house. Actually, he's going to make it real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did get the weapon. I'm sorry. Yeah. I have a. Right. Okay. Uh, at this point, they start asking him who's in the truck. So, who's in the truck? Who's in the truck? Who's in the truck? Listen to this. Oh, no, Where are the cars going? It's in the backseat. Backseat? Yep. Is anybody else in the car? Um, yes. Who's in the car? Uh, who's that? Who's in your car? Who's in my car? Yeah. Okay. Uh, who's in your car? Who's in my car? And you can see that he's very reluctant to tell people who's in the car because he knows he's laughing on, on YouTube. Um, and eventually it comes out. Who's in your truck, sir? Cassie is in my car. Cassie's in my truck. All right, Cassie. Cassie's in my truck. My wife knows that we're here, by the way. She knows we came to do this. But my wife is aware. So we're live on YouTube. So Cassie is the lady that he was having an affair with, and she was in the truck with him when he went to Carlos's house. And so this all went down. He then got...